G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Welcome to On The Rock, God's unchanging word for changing times with Dr. Camille Majdali, Director of Teach All Nations Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Camille lived and studied in the Middle East, served as the principal of a leading Bible college and now travels the world teaching God's word. He has an extraordinary knowledge of the Bible and a dynamic ability to make God's truth come alive in a real, practical way. This episode of On The Rock will give you keys to survive and succeed in the days ahead by hearing and doing the words of Jesus. Our series is entitled, The Son of God, Understanding the Gospel of John, Part 2. That's chapters 10 to 21. We are beginning chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. And chapter 12 is about the last week of Jesus before he is crucified and then risen from the dead. So if you notice, from chapters 12 to 21, really deals with the last week of Jesus. And John's gospel, like the other gospels, gives an extraordinary amount of time to this period of life because really the last week of Jesus is the centerpiece, not just of his life and ministry, but of the history of of salvation, because salvation was ratified and put into place and operative even until now because of what happened in the last week. In our previous chapter, we learned about the raising of Lazarus at Bethany, which is just a stone's throw away from the city of Jerusalem. And as we've learned, when Jesus does a miracle in Jerusalem, the response is always mixed. The normal people, the average people, are very receptive to what Jesus says and does. But to the religious elite, they are threatened, incensed, and basically form a conspiracy of how to destroy this very, very godly man. Our lesson is called Anointing at Bethany. It's in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. And I want to read to you a couple of things here. Let's begin with verse number 6 of John 12. And this is Judas Iscariot making a comment that the ointment that was poured out should have been sold and the money given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but that he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone against the day of my burying, hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Well, this is interesting, because it's important, of course, that people of faith remember the poor. We need to remember the poor because God does speak about them. And he speaks about them in terms of endearment and of care. So if God cares about them, so shall we. But oftentimes, the poor can be used as an excuse for some 
unsavory activities, like, for example, a charity ostensibly set up for the poor. They bring in a lot of money, but only a very little portion of that goes to the poor. And, of course, there are those who are poor that need not be poor, but through bad decisions and choices and what have you, they are, and they refuse to learn the lesson, and therefore they stay where they are. There's all kinds of issues like this, but at the end of the day, even the impoverished is not the most important issue. What's most important for rich and poor, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, is how and where do they stand with Almighty God? Because our future depends on the answer to that question. Jesus is putting some perspective here. You can always help the poor, because certainly in this world there will always be poor. In a fallen world, that's what happens to people. We cannot in and of ourselves cure poverty. God will do that, but we can alleviate to whatever extent we're able. Nevertheless, first things first, the gospel is for the poor, the gospel is for the rich, the gospel is for the slave and for the free, male and female. The gospel is for everyone. And one of the things the gospel does is it brings us in relationship with Christ. When you have Christ with you, you have everything. But when Christ is not there, then you're pretty much at the elements of the world. Let us read the entire portion from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Our chapter This is John chapter 12, is called Beginning of the Last Week, and this lesson is called Anointing at Bethany. Again, the reference is John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Let's listen to the Word of God. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor. And he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted, that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Our reading is from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. And our lesson is called, Anointing at Bethany. Well, the last week begins... Here in John 12, verse 1, the last week of Jesus, the week where redemption came to be ratified and installed and operative. Jesus returned to a dangerous province called Judea in order to visit Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead, 
which he did in the previous chapter, John 11. Mission accomplished. Lazarus was well and truly raised from the dead. And it was an irrefutable miracle because there were many witnesses, many, not just two or three. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. So there was no natural hope of resuscitation. Now Jesus and the disciples, after the raising of Lazarus, retreated to the wilderness area as a safe haven because of the murderous plots against the Messiah. Now, the feast of the Passover was coming, and Jewish people went up to Jerusalem to prepare themselves for this feast. Jesus himself planned to follow suit, even though his life was in danger. Now, John gives us the precise timing of these events. It says here in John 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus went up to Bethany, which of course is near Jerusalem. It's the town of Mary, Martha, two sisters, and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. As we have already learned, Bethany, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, is a mere three kilometers from Jerusalem, a 30-minute walk for some. Now, it was supper time, according to John 12, verse 2. In true Middle Eastern fashion, the family of Lazarus prepared a great meal, and Martha, as was her custom, did the serving. Lazarus, on the other hand, was sitting at the table, talking with Jesus, and no doubt the other disciples too. So this is all in place. And by the way, the supper would have been given in in many cases anyway because Martha was a hospitable person. But this was a special supper celebrating the return of the Lord back to Bethany after this great miracle. It's also a supper of gratitude for the raising of their brother from the dead. So the supper's on, Martha's in the kitchen, Lazarus is at the table, But where is Mary? Well, the answer to that question is found in the very next verse. John 12, 3. Mary took a pound of ointment of costly spikenard, and she anointed his feet with this spikenard, and then wiped the spikenard with her hair. This is apparently not the first time that she had done this, according to John 11, verse 2. But please note, there is a progression that we see in the life of Mary vis-a-vis her following of Jesus or her walk with the Lord. In Luke chapter 1039, we see that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and there she learned from him. In John 1132, she fell at the feet of Jesus and surrendered completely to him, which is a wise thing to do in any case. But it is especially wise to fall at the feet of Jesus when you are beyond and exhausted all human resources. Let me call it the prayer of desperation. It is amazing how long-term situations can be cured all at once simply by absolute surrender to God. Come to the altar, stay at the altar, and park yourself there till you know God has heard you just as Jacob did at Peniel, just as Hannah did at Shiloh, and just as Mary did when her brother had died. So she goes from sitting at the feet of Jesus to falling 
at the feet of Jesus. And then, of course, her anointing of Jesus in this verse is the final progression. She's now worshiping, and this worship isn't done cheaply. It actually costs her to worship Jesus. She sacrifices this expensive ointment, which could have been sold for a fair sum, as we are about to find out. Her devotion to the man who had raised her brother from the dead, and the gratitude it represents is very touching. And, of course, her devotion fills the whole house with fragrance. Then, the objection of Judas. John twelve four, Judas is the treasurer. Judas also is the traitor. Treasurer and traitor. He objected to this act of lavish devotion. He goes on to allege in the next verse that the ointment could have been sold for basically what could be the equivalent of a year's wages, and that money could have been given to the poor. So, by implication, why would you waste such costly anointment on Jesus? Why didn't you just liquidate the, uh, shall we say, the ointment, give the money to me, and I'll make sure the poor get it? But, of course, his cut, his overhead, would be very, very high. And then, what happens here? The real motive of Judas in John twelve six, He was being a classic hypocrite, putting on an outward pretense of caring for the poor. But the fact is, Judas Iscariot couldn't care less about the poor. All he wanted was more money put in the ministry bag, because apparently they didn't use an ATM or bank at the local bank. And of course, when there's money in the bag, even more than before, he could help himself to whatever he liked. And no doubt Jesus knew about all this, but he held his peace for sovereign reasons. Then Jesus announces the true value of Mary's devotion and what it cost her and what it would do for him. He says in John 12, verse 7, speaking up in Mary's defense, basically, he's telling Judas and anybody else who cared to listen, leave the lady alone. She has done a good work for me. She has anointed me for my imminent burial. And chances are Jesus' burial was within that week. It was prophetic in that sense. The anointed one, the Messiah, is so anointed that even there's an anointing not just for words, not just for works, but also for burial. So he goes on to say, rightly so, in John twelve eight, that there will always be poor people around, and you can help them whenever you want and are able. Yet, I will not myself always be with you. Therefore, having Jesus present anytime, anywhere, makes it a special occasion. We who are born again, have received the Holy Spirit, walk with the Lord, we have the promise of his presence. The very last verse in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's Matthew 28, verse 20, he promises to be with us always to the end of the age. Therefore, when we live a lifestyle of discipleship and devotion and obedience to him, it's always a special occasion, always, always. And then verse 9, the news spread quickly that Jesus was back in Bethany. The talk had spread everywhere 
that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So people in the Jerusalem area, and that probably even included the Passover visitors from outside of Judea, came to Bethany out of sheer curiosity, because they not only wanted to see the man who raises people from the dead, but they wanted to see the risen Lazarus as well. And then, verse 10, a very curious thing. The chief priests added Lazarus' name to the execution wish list. Since they were in a murderous mood towards Jesus, why not add his friend to the plot? Why not kill Lazarus to discredit the fact that he's raised from the dead? Of course, it's foolish. How is killing Lazarus going to disprove he rose from the dead? It's already been proven. You cannot disprove something that is irrefutably provable. You can try to cover it up and all that, but there were just too many witnesses to stop the good news. And their motive, of course, to kill Lazarus, he had the audacity to be raised from the dead. And you have to understand that the chief priests happened to be Sadducees. Sadducees, according to Acts 23, verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. So since the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in a bodily resurrection, the raising of Lazarus was an embarrassing indictment against their flawed theology. Kill this man, they reasoned, and they would disprove there is a resurrection. What they blindly and foolishly overlooked is that by killing Jesus, it would be the ultimate proof of the resurrection. And that's according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. So, this is the devilish plot of Jesus' enemies, not only to get rid of him, but to get rid of Lazarus. I just want to say, we don't know the end result. I think there's a possibility, and it's only just an educated guess, that somehow Lazarus may have survived the mayhem, because as far as I know, there's no recording that he was assassinated. He may have been hidden, especially by the early church, and lived a quiet life and died of natural causes. Very possible. Because after the resurrection, Jesus' enemies had bigger fish to fry, and that's how to snuff out not just one man's life, but the infant church. And thank God they failed miserably. Now our lesson is called Anointing at Bethany. And what is our lesson for life? What the devil and his servants mean for evil, God means it for good. That's Genesis 50, verse 20, and Psalm 76, verse 10. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.